0: David was a poet and a songwriter, and the second book of Samuel opens with one of his songs. If you haven't yet done so, please turn in your Bibles to what you have as second Samuel. It is merely the second of the two scrolls that contained what has been called throughout history either the book of David or the book of Samuel. Neither David nor Samuel wrote the book, But it is about them, specifically the young boy Samuel who took over for Eli and became the one who anointed and established the monarchy in Israel. At the beginning of the book, you'll remember that there was a poem that King David wrote about the fall of Saul. And in it, there's a phrase that is repeated, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. And David does something that is remarkable here. He doesn't gloat over the death of his enemy. He doesn't celebrate the death of his enemy. He doesn't mock the memory of his enemy. As a matter of fact, he writes a very sincere poem and song extolling the virtues of the very man who would have killed him had Yahweh not constantly delivered him. He writes a song about not only Saul, but also Jonathan, whom he loved and had done battle with, and both are now gone. And from every perspective, the kingdom should shift easily into the hands of David, but as we'll see this morning, that's not the case. In fact, it's going to be many years before everything becomes consolidated under King David. But before we can get there, we have to answer a few other questions and deal with a few other characters And that's why we're going to be looking this morning in 2 Samuel, chapter 2 through 6. And if you have a bulletin with you, you can open that up. And in there, you've got a very simple outline that will help us to better understand the big idea here, which is that Yahweh builds his kingdom. And this is going to be revealed to us through two major acts in this section. First of all, we're going to see the rise and fall of Abner in chapters 2 through 4, and then what we could say is the fall and rise of Israel in chapters 5 and 6. We have to begin here in chapter 2 with a scene that, that opens up, and it's back to David again. And David has, by God's grace, finally gotten past some of his sins that were so prevalent in his life, especially of running from situations into the very hands of the enemy. Last week, we saw how he turned his heart back to Yahweh, back to trusting in him entirely for for everything that he would have to endure. And the very narrative begins by opening up with a scene about David, and the camera zeroes in on him, and it says in chapter 2 and verse 1, after this, David inquired of the Lord. Thankfully, David turns his attention in the right direction to know what to do next. And he goes to the Lord, he goes to Yahweh, and he asks Him what to do. Not as military commanders, not as advisors, he goes to the Lord, likely through the priest. And the Lord says, yes, you need to go up and establish yourself and your kingdom in Hebron. Hebron was a city, but it was also a region. It was a region on top of a hill. It was high up. It it overlooked the valleys. And it was, if you'll recall from your readings in the other books of Moses at the beginning of your Bible, it was one of the cities of refuge. It was a place where you could go. If you had accidentally killed somebody, you could go to Hebron, and there you could at least avoid the person who was trying to kill you, and you could get a fair trial. And so David establishes himself in a city that was strategic, in a city where he and the priests and the prophet could exercise their responsibilities, and in a place where people could seek and find justice. And it is up into that city that he goes, and it's into that city that he establishes his kingdom. But remember, everybody, it's not quite that easy, because for the next several years, seven and a half He is going to be in Hebron, and he is going to be waging a campaign from there during a civil war in Israel. Israel is still at war, not just with the Philistines anymore, but with each other. And just like another civil war that happened, there is a north and there is a south. And in this case, the north are the 11 tribes of Israel, except for Judah, which is the only tribe in the south. The tribes of Israel are still under the household of Saul, and the tribe of Judah is the only one that David has. Now, David has been anointed as king already in a secret anointing by Samuel, but this is now when it's clear to everybody that he's going to be public about it. And David, as his first act as king... The first thing he does is he reaches out to the men of Jabash-Gilead. Remember, they're the men who were rescued by Saul when they were threatened with mutilation by one of the kings of the region. And Saul came in and rescued them. And as a result of that rescue, when Saul and his sons were killed and their decapitated, mutilated bodies were hung In the center of the town, it was the men of Jabash Gilead who made the run and rescued those bodies and brought them back and burned them and collected the bones and planted them under the tamarisk tree. And when David, as king, finds out that it was those men, he sends word to them, commending them and blessing them, but also reminding them in a savvy political move in chapter 2 and verse 7 Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This is a bit of information. Setting himself up. Thank you for everything you have done. May you be blessed. May you grow stronger. And may you be aware that I have been anointed king, in case you want to make an alliance. Well, at the same time, this is happening. Abner is working on a different plan. This is the, the rise of Abner. Abner realizes now that Saul is dead and his three sons are dead. That we're going to have to move the crown down a few steps. And so the first thing Abner does is the leader of the commanding, uh, the uh, commander of the army in Israel, is that he goes out and he anoints a man named Ishbosheth, or Ishboshet, depending on how you pronounce the Hebrew, as king. This is one of Saul's sons, and so if you look down at the text in verse eight of chapter two, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel, Nephtehim, and Benjamin, and all Israel, all of Israel now. The northern 11 tribes, they come under this one man, Ishbosheth, and the southern tribe, just Judah, is under the control of David. As the political chess pieces move a little bit more, we see this. Notice down in chapter 2 and verse 11. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah, it was seven years and six months. Seven years and six months of brutal, Civil war. Now, in chapter 2, verses 12 and following, we have an example of that. What was going on here when these Israelites were fighting each other? And it's a relatively famous story. It takes up the rest of chapter 2, and I'm just going to summarize it for you. The two main commanders were Abner and Joab. So, if you're trying to keep track of the characters this morning, you've got Ishbosheth in the north, and his commander is Abner. And you've got David in the south and his commander is Joab. And Abner and Joab come together and they have a little conference before the battle. It's like the generals going out to meet in the tent. And the two generals decide that maybe instead of spilling all kinds of Israelite blood today, we should just have a simple contest You take 12 of your best men, and I'll take 12 of my best men, and we'll have them fight. What that's going to do is it's going to reveal whose army is stronger. And perhaps we can settle the issue right now. Perhaps one of us will surrender just by looking at how powerful the fighting force is that we're going to be contending with today. And so that's what they do. Twelve men arise from each side, and they fight, and the fight is gruesome. This is hand-to-hand combat. This is not using guns from a distance. This is a wrestling, as it were, and what the text reveals is something fascinating. Each of these men have been trained with similar tactics both of them at the same time grab the head of their opponent and they thrust their short dagger in through the ribs and in to the side and they collapse together dead and it happens with the first pair and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the 10th and the 11th and the 12th 24 young men 24 young men in their prime as fighters dead bodies stacked up before these two generals. What's the outcome? The outcome is that it's a draw. The outcome is there is no clear indication of which side is going to fight better. If these 12 men represent your side, and they die at the same time as the 12 men on the other side, there is no clear, obvious, stronger army. And so they go at it, and they fight one another. And as the story unfolds, Israel is losing the battle, and they begin to flee. And Abner, because he was the kind of man who fought in the battle, was running, and he was running away as fast as he could. But behind him, there was someone pursuing, and he just couldn't shake him. This guy could run. Some of you in this room are runners, or you've been runners. And you know what it's like to have that amazing feeling of being able to just run like the wind. And you don't get tired, and it doesn't matter if it's on a track or cross country, and you're like that guy in Chariots of Fire who probably never said this, but he goes, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I can't relate to you people. To me, there's nothing worse than having to run. If I'm ever in a battle that involves running for my life, I'm just going to die because there's no hope. But Abner's a runner, and this guy behind him is a runner. As a matter of fact, he's so swift, he's like a gazelle, it says, and if you go down in the text to verse 26, we see what happens. Joab comes out from David's presence and he sends messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern, but David did not know about it. You see, something's happened with Abner. There's a reason that Joab is upset with Abner and the potential for an alliance. And for us to understand that, we've got to back up and see the way that it unfolds. Why is this so important? Because back in chapter 2, we're going to see how this particular run ends. Verse 18 of chapter 2, And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abshai, and Asahel. And it was Asahel who was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And he is the one who is chasing Abner. And at some point in this event, Abner turns and he says, Will you stop chasing me? I don't want to have to kill you. How am I going to be able to face your brother Joab? And this young man won't stop. And I sincerely believe that Abner meant it when he said, Will you just go and chase someone else? I know how this is going to end. You might be a good runner, but I'm a better fighter. But he won't quit. And so Abner, in self-defense, takes his spear. And he stops running, and he thrusts it backwards. And this young kid, running like a gazelle, goes straight into it. And the butt of the, spe- of the spear, the flat, blunt end, goes right through him and he dies and the men who are with him get to that point and they see him dead and they stop but Joab and his brothers they don't stop they keep pursuing and they pursue until finally Abner stops and he says look if you don't stop pursuing me we're just going to kill one another and Joab I think is probably looking for a dignified honorable way to end this battle. And so they agree that now is not the time to settle it once and for all. And so Abner goes back to his stronghold, Joab goes back to his. But what that does is it sets up the next stage in Abner's development. You see in chapter 3, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Chapter 3 verse 6, While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Saul's family is getting weaker and weaker. David's getting stronger and stronger, but Abner is getting strong in the house of a weak man. Abner is making himself strong in the house of a weak man. Abner knows that in this house that is crumbling, he's going to have opportunity to advance himself. And so he's doing everything he can to be at the top of the pile in this kingdom that is fading because maybe when it all goes down, he's going to have a chance to take it for himself. Maybe there could be a military coup. Maybe something could happen where he could advance in terms of his power and honor. And everything's going great until Ishbosheth accuses him of sexual escapades with one of his father's concubines. And all of a sudden... Abner says, that's it. If you think that I would risk my whole career over some tryst with one of your father's concubines, then obviously you don't know me, you don't trust me, you don't value me. And his honor was so offended that he says, forget it. I am no longer going to try to prop you up. I'm no longer going to help you. I'm actually turning against you. Your only ally, your general, has now not only stopped supporting you, but I'm now going to go against you. And so Abner decides that he is going to join David and David's forces down in the south. Take a look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Ishbosheth, when he confronts Abner and he responds, could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And so Abner sends out to get a word from David about the possibility of some sort of unifying move. Verse 12 asks that David would make a covenant with him. Verse 13, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. And everything seems to be going quite swimmingly at this point, except that David throws in a condition. Yeah, we'll make a covenant. You can come and be my commander in my army along with Joab. You can bring the forces of Israel down south. But when you come down here, I want you to bring my wife the one that was given by Saul her father to somebody else she had originally been given to David her original job was to arrange for David's murder she finds out about it remember and she puts the mannequin in the bed instead she helps David she lets him escape she fails as somebody who was supposed to help with his murder And then as a result, when David falls out of favor with Saul, Saul gives her to somebody else. And then David says to Abner, fine, we can come back together again, but make sure you bring Michal. Now Michal is already married to somebody else. Abner doesn't care. Abner says, all right, you're coming with me. And in this sort of interesting scene, it's sort of pathetic. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 16, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way. Then Abner said to him, go, return, go back home. She's gone. She's going back to David. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, uh, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now is the time we will make a covenant and all will be well between us. Well, everything was well right up until Joab found out about it. A little bit earlier, we mentioned that moment where Joab realizes that Abner had been in town, that Abner had been right under his thumb, that he could have somehow vindicated the life of his dead brother. And he's irate about it, and he says, how could you have let him go? And so he sends messengers to go back and get Abner, bring him back. He's got unfinished business. Verse 27 of chapter 3, And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of his brother. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that Hebron was a city of refuge? What Abner did on the battlefield was not a sin. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't against the law. But even if the jury was out on that, he could have come to Hebron and he could have been in the city getting a fair trial. And Joab, out of revenge, out of hatred, not only does he kill this man, not only does he break the codes of conduct by taking him aside and stabbing him like an assassination, but he does it in the very gates where justice was to be given for those who were on trial. This is illegal, it is immoral, and it is ungodly. And Joab is going to be a thorn in David's side for the rest of his life. David responds by cursing Joab's family. And then David writes a poem, just like he did about Saul, now he does about Abner. Saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Verse 33 of chapter 3. Verse 34, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. What Abner did was wrong. And David writes a song about it. He says, you weren't a prisoner. You weren't guilty. You were killed the way that wicked people kill people. You weren't killed in an honorable way. Isn't it amazing how David cares more about truth and justice than anybody else, it seems, in these texts? David, as a type of Christ, is saying that there is no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and there is no pleasure when the wicked kill. Well, let's wrap up the chapter. Verse 37 So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. He didn't eat. He fasted. He let everybody know that I'm not going to eat anything until we have finished mourning for Abner because I had nothing to do with it. And when he writes the song and he shows that publicly, they realize he was telling the truth. Well, he's not the only person to be murdered. Look at chapter 4. Things continue to go downhill. Abner is dead. Now, what about the kings in the north? What about Ishbosheth? Well, Ishbosheth is not a strong leader. And during the middle of the day, when everybody is usually resting because it's simply too hot, two of the men who he put in charge over his raiding bands come into his house and they kill him. The account is given to you in a couple of ways in the text because the narrator is giving you a couple different angles, a couple different views. It's the same event. But they go in, and while he's lying there sleeping, They stab him in the stomach and they kill him and they cut off his head. And they bring his head to David as a trophy. And they say, Look, we have put to death Ishbosheth, the king of the northern tribes, your enemy. We have done this for you, David. And David responds to them the same way that he responds to the Amalekite who said he killed Saul. David says, You have done nothing honorable, you have done nothing good. You've done nothing godly, and you've done nothing at all to advance your position in my eyes. And as a matter of fact, chapter 4, verse 12, look what it says. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. You see, this is the rise and fall not only of Abner, but also of Ishbosheth. Both of them, at the beginning of this chapter, are men who are on a trajectory upward. They are the ones who are in a position of power and authority. And now, by the end of chapter four, both are dead, both are buried. The rise and fall of Abner. But the second part here is in chapters five and six, and that's what we'll call the fall and rise of Israel. Things begin to change. Notice what it says in chapter 5 and verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. We are the same same as you. It's similar to what Adam says when the man sees the woman that God has created. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are equal to me. You are made of the same stuff as I am made of. And this is the argument for a united kingdom. We're made of the same stuff, we're from the same people. And in the rise of Israel, we're going to see her king, her capital, her champion, and her God. Her king, her capital, her champion, and her God. This is pretty straightforward. Chapter 5 is a bunch of vignettes. Chapter 5 are a bunch of flashbacks. Chapter 5 is not given to you in chronological order, we'll see that in a moment. Chapter Five is, is little scenes uh, that we see that, that are depictions of David's life. And it begins here with the king. He is established. Look at the first five verses of chapter five. Beginning in verse two, at times passed when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought, up, brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, "You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over her." I love the fact that the author says this of him. This was what was said of him. He would be a shepherd and a prince. He would be the shepherd king of Israel, prefiguring the great shepherd king who would come. And so all the elders gather together and they make him king. And he was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. He reigned in Hebron for seven and a half years, and then he reigned in Israel, in Jerusalem. Verse 33, he was their king. But secondly, notice her capital. This is in verse 6 through 16. What, what good is a king without a capital? What good is a king you know, without a palace, without a central place of authority? Hebron wasn't going to cut it. He needed a city that was located in the middle of Israel. He needed some place where he could rule from, the seat of power. Where is that capital going to be? And so again, verse 6 of chapter 5, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. What they didn't know was that in Genesis fifteen eighteen to 21, God had already promised Abraham that his descendants would have that city And even though Abraham didn't take it, and Joshua didn't take it, and Caleb didn't take it, the time would come when God's promise would be fulfilled, because when God makes a promise, it never expires. And so it was David, many centuries later, who took the city. And if you seem to think that would be easy, look at what the inhabitants said. They said, our city is so well protected that the blind and the lame could hold off your army. We could send the blind people and the lame people out, and that would be enough to hold you off. Why? Because they thought there was no way anyone could get at them. And the reason was twofold. They had tall walls, and they had access to water. That's all they needed. They could wait as long as it took. When you've got walls and you've got water, that's all you need. And so since David's men could do nothing about the walls, they went after the water. You see, what you had there was a spring that went up and and fed the wells, And what they had designed uh, was a way to get at that water. And what you did was you went in from inside the city of Jerusalem down several steps. You went across a a 90-foot tunnel, and there you arrived underground at this shaft that led down to the well. That shaft was 37 feet deep. Now, in case that's hard for you to picture, from the floor to the very highest point on that ceiling is about 30 feet. So you've got all the way up there and then the height of an NBA basketball player. Now, the question is, how did that entryway into the city serve David's men? We don't know for sure. Some people suggest they climbed up and that was how they got into the city. Others suggest that they simply cut off access to the water and then the city fell. We don't know exactly how, but we do know what they did and it was by use of this. So, for all you engineers out there, you'll find this fascinating. It was a failure in the engineering that led to the fall of the city. Look at chapter 5 again. Just let's continue on the narrative. Chapter 5 and verse 10, David becomes greater and greater because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. Hiram, king of Tyre, one of the pagan kings, is sending to him gifts of cedar trees so he can build his house and build his palace. David, verse 12, knew that Yahweh had established him. Everything is going really well. David is established. His kingdom is established. The people are behind him. He has turned to Yahweh to be the one who guides and directs his affairs. He has conquered the city and he now has a capital. He didn't have to break down the walls. He simply had to get inside of it and get rid of the people. He's got a pre-built fortress and city. Everything seems to be going really well. But then this happens. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. David is not the Messiah. David's life is an ongoing testimony of the successes and the struggles of a sinner. And the author of this wants you to understand that as a reader, that David, though he is the anointed king, though he is the shepherd king, though he is the one who is going to rule Israel, though he is the one who's going to build or at least assemble all of the materials for building a temple to Yahweh, he is not the Messiah. He is not the one who always pleases God. And what he did here is he did what kings did in those days, and he took on more wives and more concubines. Well, That's talking about their king and their capital. Let's talk about our champion. Look what it says here, beginning in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines came and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. This is a story that has David fighting the Philistines on two different occasions. In two different occasions, the Philistines come up against the valley of Rephaim. It's an east-west valley that would have cut his kingdom in two. If they defeated him there, he would have had no way to unify the kingdom geographically. And so in both cases, he does the right thing, and he goes to Yahweh, and he says, Should I go up against them? And in the first case, Yahweh says, Yes, go against them. And they fought, and they won. And the second time, he says, Do I go against them? And he says, Yes, but he takes them a different direction, and they fight, and they win. Now, that's pretty clear, but what I want you to see this morning is the involvement of Yahweh in the battle. So take a look specifically at verse 20 of chapter 5. And David came to Baal-perazim. Baal was just a word for God, not Yahweh, but just the gods. And um, it's called, if you were to translate it literally, God of the bursting forth. This is the place where God bursts forth. And he's talking about the victory in the battle. He's talking about the way that God himself goes up and God fights for them. You see, they are fighting on one level, but it's ultimately Yahweh who is doing the fighting for them. Yahweh who is bringing the victory. And he calls this Baal Perazim. And he said, I'm still in verse 20, that Yahweh has burst through. It's the same word. My enemies, therefore, are like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. God of the bursting forth. Because God bursts forth to my enemies. And my enemies burst apart. Therefore, it's called God of the bursting forth. You see, that repetition would be in your mind. And how does he burst forth? Look down at the second section after the second battle. Verse 24. For then Yahweh has gone out before you. Yahweh goes out before you to do the striking down. So brothers and sisters, on a human level, her king is David, but ultimately it is Christ. On a human level, her capital is Jerusalem, but as we will see, there will be a new Jerusalem one day. In terms of her champion, yes, David is there, but it is ultimately God who does the winning. And then finally, let's look at her God This is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 23. It's a well-known section. Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David and all of his men gather, and David arises with all the people, verse 2, who are with him, and he brings them up from there, and he gets the ark of God, which is called the name of Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The time has come for the ark to come in. The very presence of God is symbolized in this golden box. And David says, now is the time. And so he goes and he gathers the people together and there's going to be a great celebration. And all of the instruments start playing and all the people start singing and there is dancing and there is joy. They've got the ark. Finally, this is the capstone to everything. We've got the king, we've got the city, and now we need the ark and then everything will be complete. And in the midst of their celebrating... One of the people who is responsible for bringing this ark into the city drops dead. And everything stops. Everyone stops singing. Everyone stops playing. Everyone stops dancing. What's going on? is dead. What did Uzzah do? Uzzah touched the ark. You say, wait a second, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, I thought God was gracious and merciful. Wouldn't this be something where at least a warning could come out first? The answer is no. Because God was very clear in Numbers chapter 4, you don't have to turn there now, but just Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, on how the ark is to be carried and what you're supposed to do with it. It is to be carried only by the tribe of Levi. You are not allowed to look at it. You're not allowed to look in it. You're not allowed to touch it and you're not allowed to carry it on a wagon. It was very clear. And if David had simply read the instructions, Uzzah would not have died. David, who was supposed to have written out a copy of the first five books of Moses in his own hand for his own benefit, if he had actually gone back to remember what the instructions were, none of this would have happened. Isn't it odd that in an event like this, which is not an everyday event, moving the ark doesn't happen every day. Wouldn't you think to yourself, or maybe one of the priests, or maybe one of the prophets might say to you, by the way, before we head over there and grab the ark, I think I remember reading something about that in the Law of Moses. Maybe we should check. None of that happened. They just want to get that ark back as quickly as they can. So they moved it the way the Philistines moved it built an ark, hitched it up to some animals, and they began towing it. It starts to tip over, Uzzah touches it, Uzzah dies. Uzzah died as a reminder that God is not to be trifled with. He is not to be taken too casually. The application is that God is not to be taken casually. There is fear in your worship, according to Psalm 2. Real fear, fear of the Lord, fear of the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the perfection of God, fear of his word and his instructions and what he says to us. And Uzzah failed on this account. And David, in a moment of weakness, expresses his anger, not against Uzzah, not against people who didn't tell him, not against himself for being foolish, but against God who acted justly. Once again, David is not perfect. So the ark rests for three months in the home of a man named Obed-Edom, and God begins to bless that man's home. It becomes evident that God's favor is still among his people, and so, God, and so David goes back again to get the ark a second time. And this time he does it right. And he brings it into the city of David with rejoicing. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. And David danced before Yahweh with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. David danced before the Lord, and not, not just a weak little dance. This was dancing with all his might. Have you ever been at a wedding where after it's over the young people are dancing? And I say young people because I'm not a young person anymore, and they're dancing with all their might. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by it sometimes. I sit back and I just watch, and it's, it's remarkable They're so into it, they're so enthusiastic with with everything they've got. They're just dancing and they're enjoying the the music, they're enjoying the celebration. This is David, he's dancing with all of his might and he's wearing a linen ephod. Uh, That was something only the priests were supposed to wear and he wasn't putting it on, stealing it and dressing up the way that he shouldn't, the way that Saul was condemned for doing earlier because David really was acting like a priest. It was one of his roles that he had. He was a king and a priest for the people. And he is dancing. He is so excited. What does that say about our worship? What does it say about us when we come in to gather to worship and, and we should be singing, but you're only mumbling? Or maybe you're not singing at all, or maybe you skip most of the worship because you don't like to arrive on time and you're still meandering in from the parking lot. You can hear the music inside. Not that important. Worship, you know, we're just here because we want to hear the the preaching or something. The sermon, that's the really important part of the service. No, everything is from the very beginning to the very end. How are we doing in that? Let me just ask the question. I'm not trying to judge anyone, I just want to ask the question. I'll let the Spirit convict you. You don't need me. How do we engage in worship? Do we engage in worship? This might come as a shock, but from time to time, people complain. I know. Imagine. In a church, people complain. They do from time to time. And I heard a complaint recently, not from the person directly. It got back to me the way most complaints do. And this person was complaining because they were in church here on a Sunday morning, and somebody behind them was singing very loudly. (laughs) A young man was singing very loudly. And I thought to myself, praise God for that kind of complaint. If the complaint that you're coming up with is that young men are singing loudly in church, may everyone complain about that. You see, people who genuinely understand The depth of their sin and the glory of their Savior sing loudly. They have emotion. It does affect them. And it affected David. But much like this complainer, David's got a complainer. And she is set out in stark contrast. Stark contrast to David's joy. And I would argue stark contrast to Uzzah's carelessness. You've got McCall's coldness. Look down at the rest of chapter 6. As the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Macall, the daughter of Saul. And that's all she's called in this section. The daughter of Saul, verse 20. The daughter of Saul, verse 23. The daughter of Saul. You ever known that person who just can't get past their loyalty to the previous regime? No matter what you do, it's not, nothing's ever good enough because that's not the way we used to do it. Oh, things were better off in the old days. Oh, blah, blah, blah. This is what they've got with McCall. McCall is just the daughter of Saul. She's not the wife of David. Her whole fixation is the way things were under her father. Her father can do no wrong. Her father was the one who is right. She's literally saying here in this text as being referred to as the daughter of Saul that she is still linked with her father, And she is the one who attacks David for his exuberant worship. David knows better. Because what he does in verse 18 and 19, it says when he's finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts, and he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people went to their house. David says, I'm here to celebrate this. I'm here to share the, the bounty with you. Sounds very much like what Paul says of Christ in Colossians, that he defeated all of his enemies. He laid captivity captive, leading them all behind him as a defeated enemy, and then he gives gifts to men. He Celebrates by giving us gifts. So many of the riches in Christ. Well, David models this as a type of Christ. And here's McCall, insulted by his exuberant dancing. And the end result is that David, probably in a very fleshly moment as well, says some pretty unkind things back to Hirsch, says, if you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet, babe. You're offended by this. You ain't even begun to see what I'm going to do. I have not yet begun to defile myself. If this is something that is offensive to you, if glorifying God and celebrating and dancing and singing is offensive to you well, then you're going to be a very offended woman. It was the end of their relationship because chapter 6 ends with these words, and McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I don't believe that was God cursing her with barrenness. I believe that was David agreeing to cut off the relationship with her. Now, let's apply this, shall we? When we look to Christ, there are two things that we can see very clearly Better ways now to understand that old covenant because of the light of the new. The first is in regard to the city of God. You don't have to turn here, but if you were to go to Isaiah chapter 24, we read this Isaiah 24, 21 to 23. On that day, Yahweh will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for Yahweh Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. There's a new Jerusalem. David secures Jerusalem. Isaiah says that Christ will come to reign in Jerusalem, and the book of Revelation says there will be a new Jerusalem. It comes down from heaven upon the new earth. Verse 22, "'And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb.' "'By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. "'And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. "'And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, "'but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, "'but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life.'" Jerusalem will be the place where the king and his people live forever. We also can see this in our understanding of the very Son of God. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, we read this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit, meaning inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and he's now quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Jesus says, David was not the ultimate. David was not the Messiah. David is writing to the Lord. And who is that Lord? That's the Lord that was always in existence and always has been. That is the Lord who created David. And who's that Lord? Jesus says, I'm that Lord. I am the one who has come to be the greater David. How must our response be then? Well, I think it begins by remembering that human leaders will fail us We saw back in 2 Samuel 5.13, David starts accumulating wives and concubines. It cannot be said of David, as it is said of Christ in John 8.29, that all he did was pleasing to the Lord. You see, another David had to come who would only do what is right, who would only do what is proper, who would never sin, and that was Christ. And so what is our response to him I think we have to view it in terms of two words, trust and triumph. The first word is trust. I think this section here in chapter 6 brings to a conclusion something very important to us, because in the reclaiming of the ark, you have this picture of what is to come. It was the ark that contained the Word of God. It was upon the ark that atonement was made when blood was sprinkled on it, and it's the ark that is referred to as the very footstool of God, the one who essentially hovers above it. You see, in that picture, you've got the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet and the word of God, the priest and the sacrifices of God. The king, in the sense that this was his symbol of his divine rule and authority. It's his, it's his footrest. He is over everything. Let that be your comfort. Let that be your rest. You are not fighting any wars. God does the fighting for you you're not fighting a culture war. You are an evangelist. You are not the church militant. You are the church victorious to one day be the church at rest. You are the ones who are to live your lives as citizens of another kingdom, not fighting relentlessly to try to make this place heaven. Beware of those who would teach you that through militant advocacy or through political means that you can somehow reconstruct this world and redeem it and make it worthy one day of Christ's rule. We are not looking to somehow create the millennial kingdom here on earth by our own efforts. Rest. Go about the business that God has given you and do it with great confidence that this world is not yours to redeem. Redemption is spiritual. Your message is spiritual. And the fruit is spiritual. We need to see this not only in our trusting but also in whatever triumph we do have. As we said earlier, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is a wonderful place where we can go to see this play out. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 14 Paul writing to this Group of Corinthian believers who had their own issues, as we know, was able to sum up his instruction to them with these words But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you want to do something for the culture? Do you want to do something for the country? You want to do something for your neighbor? This is what you need to do. You live a life of obedient, holy thankfulness to Christ, who has already led captivity captive. He has already triumphed over the powers of darkness when he rose from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And through you, he spreads not a political agenda. Through you he spreads not some agenda to be a militant fighter on earth. Through you he spreads this, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. During this season of Thanksgiving, may that be what we are thankful for, and may that be what the people around us are thankful for. I referenced it a little bit earlier. The church is one foundation, hymn number 345. And the third stanza says that midst toil and tribulation, midst all the sorrows and battles and fights of this age, may we put all of our faith and trust in Christ and be the church victorious already. Not the church militant, but the church victorious, knowing that one day when he returns, we will be the church at rest. The Israelites had a taste of that under David but we get the full feast under Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for these wonderful truths that you've given us. Thank you for the lessons that we've learned through studying the life of David. He is such an important character in redemptive history, and yet such a flawed one. A man who at one moment seems to be putting his full faith and trust in you, and at another moment doing everything his flesh desires. Remind us that he is merely a type and a shadow of the one who would come and do all things well, the one who in everything pleased God. We thank you for the history that we get to read in these books that include the fulfillment of your promises to Abraham that David would one day take that city of Jerusalem that it would become the, the capital. But remind us that one day the true Jerusalem will come and there will be no need for a temple because you indwell everything. Thank you for giving us David, who is a particular picture of a son, but that you came to be the true son, the one who was in glory even before David was born, and that you have come and you have finished your work, and that you too have ascended the anointed king of the earth, and we await your return and coronation. May that be what fills our hearts with joy. May that be what directs us in our everyday lives, and may that be the only triumph that we seek. In your name we pray. Amen.